up on today's show, the mayors of Calgary and Edmonton will join us. Don Iveson and Nahed Nenshi give us their breakdown of the federal budget that we saw yesterday. We'll also hear from a Conservative MP and get his take. And we'll chat with a law professor about a disturbing case, an Edmonton fertility doctor admitting to taking part in a drug kickback scheme and over-prescribing. I'm sure you've heard the highlights of the budget. Essentially, what we're talking about here is a whole lot of money. Record spending comes with a record deficit predicted at $354 billion for the year that just ended and $154 billion for next year. The centerpiece and the focus is $10 a day childcare within five years. The price tag on that, another $30 billion. So uh, it's going to be a, a lot of money spent. $18 billion for Indigenous communities. $17.6 billion on the green recovery. Uh, So lots of things that people were expecting. Um, Not a lot in terms of revenue generation. That was left pretty much as it is for this year. So spending way up. uh, And at this point anyway, at this point anyway, not a lot of plans in terms of how to get any of that money back. But uh, the deficit does drop slowly but surely down to $31 billion in 2025-2026. So, as I said, we're going to chat with uh, the mayors of Calgary and Edmonton now and get their take on this. So, uh, let me see if I can figure out how to work these phones. Uh, okay, let's start with uh, Mayor Don Ivison, Edmonton. Mayor Ivison, are you there? Hey, Jay, how you doing? Good, how are you? All right. Uh, I'm gonna... Congrats on the new show, by the way. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm going to see if I can bring... Oh, we don't have Mayor Nahad Nenshi yet. So we're going to start with just you, Mayor Iveson, and that's fine. Uh, because I know you had... First of all, I, I, before we get into the budget discussion, I hear you almost got run over by one of those kids on a scooter, hey? <laughs> Not one. It was a whole school of fish <laughs> that was passing me with my... And, and I was with my family and our dog. And so having this group of people <laughs> passing us on both sides at full speed on a narrow sidewalk was, was not great. No, it was... I, you dodged it. Was not it wonderful. Well. But in in other civic news, I don't know. Have you seen the draft designs for the? And I know this is this is close to your heart. The 50th Street train crossing. I I, I don't want to see draft designs, Mayor. With all due respect, I want to see a bridge. I didn't even look at the draft designs. Uh, but I am delighted to hear that this project is still going ahead. I'm, I've taken the approach that I'll believe it when I see it. Fair um, enough. Well, well, you can see renderings of what it will look like, and then uh, construction will begin uh, uh, as soon as the public engagement uh, on the design is finished, which we want to do quickly because I want the same thing you want, which is smoother flow of goods and, and people in that important uh, economic heart of our city. Yeah, it, it is so important, and I, I'm just tickled to death that it's happening. Um, okay, uh, Mayor Nenshi is available to join us now. Hi, Mayor Nenshi, are you there? Hello, I'm glad we made it through. Excellent. I think Don just, want, Don just wanted to monopolize the time. So. Well, you know, we, we had important things to discuss. If you had any idea what that train does to the commute in Edmonton, Marinenshi, you'd be right on board with us, I'm telling you. I know a lot about this train <laughs> overpass. Uh, Mayor Iverson has told me about it for many, many years. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate it. Why don't we just um, sort of do this uh, one at a time, just giving us our general take on what we saw. We'll start with you, Mayor Nenshi. In terms of the document uh, as a whole, um, what kind of a grade would you give it? What do you like? What do you not like? Well, you know, by and large, as a national document, I think it talks about a lot of the right things in terms of supporting businesses and individuals through this pandemic. Uh, continuing business supports, uh, continuing the individual supports. There are some things in it broadly that I find challenging. So, for example, if I had money to give for seniors support, I would focus on low-income seniors. 
uh, rather than on $500 for every senior, things like that. Mm -hmm. But the biggest uh, issue for me, and, and Don will talk a lot about some of the stuff that cities are looking for, and I'll save him that in terms of infrastructure and housing and transit. But for me, the biggest thing here was what I've been really calling for is what I call asymmetric investments. Alberta contributes uh, outsized to our population, to the Federation, and we're in a point right now where we actually need outsized investments. And so here in Calgary, I was looking for some specific capital investments for Calgary, as well as a focus on Calgary's downtown and Calgary's economic recovery. And we didn't really see that. So Alberta cities are just going to have to compete for the national programs again, uh, where we tend to fall short. You know, on the Rapid Housing Initiative, which is something that Don and I basically designed for the federal government, you know, Calgary has 8% of Canada's homeless population, and we ended up with 2% of the funding, uh, which is frustrating because I really believe that a relatively modest investment in housing from the feds would actually help us end chronic homelessness in Calgary and Edmonton because we have so much vacancy and so many hotels uh, that we could convert. Uh, but that's not what we got in this budget. And I know, Mayor Iveson, that was also an issue for you in terms of the federal housing. And, and as uh, Mayor Nenshi says, that has been uh, something that you championed for a long time, and you were a little disappointed in what, what you saw yesterday. Well, I, I should start by saying there's some things that I do really like, and then we can talk about housing in a minute. But to your previous question, you know, the child care investments are massive, and we can't have a recovery for families, and particularly for women, without child care. So that's a huge move. And it's one of those systemic interventions that will mean families are in a better position, will reduce poverty, will reduce the flow of people in precarious housing uh, and marginalized circumstances, and reduce the need for things like affordable housing down the road. Um, Some of the other economic development things that I hope we'll talk about in a minute are really positive related to hydrogen and innovation, uh, the transit and infrastructure uh, dollars uh, that were previously announced but Mm -hmm. are confirmed in this budget are huge. But on on the housing, um, you know, we had, uh, uh, and the federal government's moved immensely on this. I mean, they now have a 70, probably $75 billion um, uh, approaching national housing strategy, which is $75 billion more for housing than we had five years ago. And the mayors have been relentless on this because we see the need, we see uh, the heartbreaking reality for people experiencing homelessness in our communities, and we see the, the toll it takes on Main Street and businesses, and we see the cost that it drives, not just for policing for us, but, you know, 10x for justice and probably 100x for health care on the provincial side. So, you know, there is a cost-effective solution here, which is housing people, and we've talked about this many many times. So we welcome the, you know, there's another billion and a half for this rapid housing initiative. Uh, we had asked for $7 billion to sort of once and for all meet the need and create jobs in the process of either building or renovating uh, units or hotel units uh, uh, to meet that need. So uh, we welcome additional investment. It's not quite to the scale of transformation that will be needed to rapidly end homelessness, but the federal government has reiterated its commitment to ending chronic homelessness, a goal the mayors across the country share and are interested in delivering as soon as possible. So we'll continue to advocate for more investment there and try to leverage the dollars as much as we can. Um, Help me understand this, because Mayor Iveson, you're saying there's some really good things for the energy sector in Alberta. Mayor Nenshi, in some of your comments, you're saying there's not enough for the energy sector in Alberta, and Alberta was largely overlooked. Can both of those things be true? What are we talking about here? Is it, it, um, you know, north-south, or is it just a, a different take on what we saw in the document? 
No, I think that there is uh, there's opportunity in there. Let's put it that way. There's real opportunity in there. But in order to capitalize on that opportunity, the province is going to have to be at the table. Um, because, you know, our province, uh, provincial government, has an aversion to anything with the word green in it. So there's a lot of money in the budget that is uh, for quote-unquote green jobs. But those jobs could be jobs in carbon capture and storage. Mm-hmm. It could be jobs in orphan well recovery. And But the province is going to have to be part of that conversation, not just crossing their arms and saying, we don't like uh, what the feds are doing. And that's something that I think Albertans deserve from this provincial government, is to not leave money on the table as they consistently have been doing. Yeah, Mayor Iverson, do you agree? I mean, it, certainly there is money available for this sector, but uh, as Mayor Nancy says, it's going to take the province's cooperation. Well, we've both, uh, Nahid and I, sat on the Western Economic Solutions Task Force of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, which is rural and urban leaders from across the prairies and northern B.C., uh, who, who are making the case that this part of the country needs disproportionate investment. You know, we've already had some wins, like the significant investment in orphan wells um, uh, that is a, a proven job creator uh, for people who have skills in the industry today. I think, you know, we need to see more of that, and, and uh, the provincial government needs to be a part of that too. I'd agree with that point. I think um, you know we've seen also some some specific investments to the new Prairies Regional Economic Development Agency that we haven't seen mm-hmm. all the specifics yet. But you know I'm hoping that we'll see some boosts uh, for the biomed economy here. Uh, there's specific money for the artificial intelligence uh, center here in Edmonton. So there are some investments in the new and emerging economy. Um, and uh, and then I think for me on uh, in terms of the energy energy business uh, and clean tech, and I think we can have a both and here, uh, you know, the tax credit for carbon utilization storage and the support for the hydrogen economy could mean tens of billions of dollars of investment in clean fuels. Um, we've looked at a $100 billion a year export potential for hydrogen produced here using carbon capture utilization and storage. Um, that would uh, be low carbon and ultimately no carbon blue hydrogen derived from natural gas. So that gives lifeblood for our existing natural gas products to be relevant in the energy transition and a zero carbon future using carbon capture, utilization, and storage. And the best part is that all of that technology and all of the jobs around it are are really not that different than the traditional energy and pet chem economy that we've been in. So I think it's actually the smart pivot to be relevant and attract that ESG-minded investment. And so I think this is going to unlock huge potential and relevance. And if all orders of government work together, I think we can get a good news story for the relevance of Canada's energy products and this region's prosperity going into the future in a way that's aligned with that net zero by 2050 goal. So I think there's a both and here if we get it right. Um, Mayor Iveson, you're speaking not only as mayor of Edmonton, but also as um, chair of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, Big mayors, uh, big City Mayor's Caucus. So uh, I think one of the issues I want to get both of your takes on is transit. And I know that's an issue for basically every Canadian municipality. Um, there was a mention of transit in there. I know some good news for the Green Line in Calgary. Um, uh, let's start with you, uh, Mayor Nenshi. Uh Transit, uh, a constant bugaboo when it comes to getting the province to work with the feds, to work with municipalities, uh, getting everybody on the same page. Do we take a step forward in that direction with this? Uh, yes, very much so. Um, so we, uh, you know, before every budget, people ask me, what are your interests? And I could just see on auto repeat, which is it's always transit, housing, and infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and in transit, we've been pushing for many years for a permanent ongoing source of funding for transit from the federal government. I mean, we've talked about this when Paul Martin was prime minister. And so we finally have it. And that's exactly what we've been asking for. And for Calgarians, what that means is, well, the Green Line is already funded. We just have to get through some hoops with the province here, which I hope we'll finally finish soon. Uh, they're adding a lot of red tape to this discussion. But um, the Green Line Phase 1 is fully funded. But as soon as Phase 1 comes to completion in around 2025, 2026, this permanent annual funding will kick in. And what that will allow a future city council to do in Calgary is they'll be able to just continue building the Green Line station by station going north um, all the way past Stony Trail and going south past uh, the hospital in Seton. Uh, and that's a very, very good thing. We will use the specialized funding up front to build the really complicated part through the downtown, and then we can use the permanent funding to just continue that program until it's done. And Mayor Ives, and of course, transit is uh, another big issue with a number of major projects on the table in Edmonton. Uh, are you pleased with what you saw on that file? Yeah, uh, there are a few more details that have emerged in the budget, but uh, based on the announcement back in February, um, you know, we have a shovel-ready project with existing funds ready to go with the south extension from Century Park to Ellerslie Road, um, and that's an important billion-dollar job creator program that's shovel-ready for 2022, and uh, so we're getting close, I hope, to being able to announce that, but now with this ongoing commitment, we can actually look at that project not as ending at that park and ride, but carrying on to the hospital construction site one stop south and another two stops to Heritage Valley Town Centre and start to think about taking it down towards the airport and also extending the line from from Blatchford northwest towards Castle Downs and out to St. Albert. And so now we have line of sight to thinking about the build out of light rail as the backbone of the regional transportation system, which is at the heart of our city plan and the heart of our regional growth plan. Uh, and so it's really exciting uh, to be able to think that far out and think about uh, the relevance of rapid transit uh, to more Edmontonians and more neighbours in the region too as we build the Regional Transit Commission uh, uh, up together. And there's uh, one other dimension to this which is really positive too. There's uh, additional resources to help support municipalities um, adopting uh, uh, low carbon and low emissions and ultimately zero emissions transit technology. So so uh, we took advantage of uh, some of those uh, this week at Council with the approval of some uh, borrowing uh, that is uh, supported and backed, very low interest borrowing from the federal government, so that we can finance the more expensive electric buses, which are way cheaper to run over time and have way lower emissions profiles, and, and then bring those savings forward, just like people who are buying electric cars, it costs a little more up front to buy, but uh, pay themselves back within a few years. You know, there's financing and grants to support rapid acceleration of zero emission vehicles and there are two different Canadian manufacturers uh, working on uh, on this Nova and New Flyer and so those can be Canadian jobs potentially supporting um, the adoption of that new technology by more Canadian cities so uh, and there's also the potential to look at things like uh, hydrogen fuel retrofits for existing uh, diesel engines within our fleets uh, so green fleets is a big part of this too uh, but ultimately Ultimately, the big dollars will support those rapid transit investments uh, that uh, that cities need to be competitive mm-hmm. and to give people more options to the car. Okay, last one before I let you guys go. Um, uh, both of you and the councils that you lead have talked a lot about doing um, more or the same with less. 
and and uh, really facing some some revenue shortages and really trying to come up with some creative budgeting schemes here. This doesn't seem overly creative. This just seems running up the deficit. Are you guys at all concerned with the amount of money and the deficits that are being racked up with this plan? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm a real debt hawk, despite what uh, some people may say on social media. We reduced the city's debt by half a billion dollars uh, over the time that I've been the mayor. And so I do worry. I worry when debt-to-GDP ratio goes above 50%, and this is going to touch 51% mm-hmm. before coming down to 49 Um The long-term projections to a $30 billion deficit in, I think, 2025, they're okay. I'd like to see that a bit more aggressive post-pandemic. They're relying a lot on economic growth here. If they're going to do that, though, they have to actually invest in the economic growth to make it happen. So long story short, it's a pandemic. I can't be too critical. The federal government's job is to really send out money for other people to run programs. And here in Calgary, we've actually uh, really cut our expenses a lot this year. We just revealed our final year-end surplus uh, for last year. So we've been doing that job and doing more with less. It's harder for the federal government, but ultimately they have to be able to get these debt-to-GDP ratios and keep them manageable. Mayor Iveson? Well, I I would agree uh, that that the ratio is important and also mindful of both inflation and interest rate risk uh, because a structural deficit coming out of this, if rates rise dramatically, would be crippling um, both to federal coffers and and to the economy. So I think that there's a a lot of uh, careful scrutiny required there. Uh, But I do think that the appropriate order of government is undertaking the borrowing on behalf of Canadians. You know, we're we're a good bet out there in the world. And so at 0.7% right now to float the the rebound and recovery uh, and, and bounce back of this country, I think it's the right move to be investing in stimulus uh, and enabling that strong economic recovery, which we're going to need so that we can pay these bills back. Uh, but it's got to get under control quickly, absolutely. And, and I would say that the reason it's important the federal government make these interventions is because cities have uh, very limited capacity and, in fact, can't take yeah. operating deficits or build structural deficits, which I support. So both Nahed and I and mayors across the country have had to do quite a bit of work to balance our budgets in spite of lower revenues from things like transit boxes and closed re- rec centers. Uh, and yet, you know, we've balanced our budgets uh, uh, this year and supported business, uh, frozen taxes for business for two years in a row and delivered a zero for residential. Actually, it's a reduction in business taxes to offset an increase on the provincial education tax. So, you know, it nets out to zero for uh, homeowners and businesses in Edmonton, plus specific aid to reduce fees. So we're doing our part while balancing our budgets because we can't run deficits. The order of government that we uh, want to uh, uh, to invest counter-cyclically to bounce back has to be the federal government primarily. And so I think they're in their lane in doing that. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. A lot of our listeners want to know, uh, anybody have any plans they want to announce? We both know you're not running for re-election this fall. Anybody want to break some news here this morning? Oh, we, we already did that on a joint interview last week. Uh, Don and I will be starting the new Alberta Roller Derby League <laughs> and captaining the teams in Edmonton and Calgary. Oh, I missed that. I missed that. That'll be fun, though. Yeah, and I'm nominating uh, Nahid okay. for... I'm nominating Nahid for Governor General. I think there's an opening. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. I know you're busy. Uh, Thank you for weighing in this morning. Thanks so much, Shane. Congratulations on the new show. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. That is Mayor Nahid Nenshi in Calgary and Mayor Don Iveson in Edmonton weighing in with their take on what we saw in the federal budget yesterday.
want to get the perspectives from the official opposition. And joining us now to weigh in on that, we have uh, Greg McLean, the Conservative MP for Calgary Centre, and the Shadow Minister for Natural Resources and Northern Economic Development. Um, uh, Mr. McLean, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me, Shane. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so when we take a look at what uh, we saw yesterday, just give us a grade uh, overall. What did you see in the, in, in, in the federal budget, and um, how is it being received among the Conservative Party? Well, we're turning through a 700-plus page document at this point in time, and as you noted in your comments, the massive spending that just continues to go forward here and push forward. I mean, recognize we've got a lot of comparisons we have to make here. We haven't had a budget in over two years. We had a fall economic statement that had hundreds of millions of dollars, pardon me, hundreds of billions of dollars of deficit indicated there. And the good news, uh, the good news on that, of course, is that that expectation of the budget from last year is down slightly, about $30 billion from where they expected it. That's good news because we actually are getting some activity happening mm-hmm. back in Canada that's paying taxes. Uh, not uh, not hedging at all on pushing the money out the door, but they are getting more money in the door from economic activity. Good for them. But notably, since the, since the fall economic statement and with this budget, they're pushing forth an extra $50 billion in spending. So you think about the $154.7 billion deficit we're going to have in 2021 22 that's up almost 50 billion dollars from the forecast they had less than six months ago so you know there's issues here about pushing forward how much money we're going to continue to spend i think they think they found a tolerance level with the canadian public on what that deficit on a yearly basis looks like and they're going to continue to push that number forward and that number keeps getting bigger as you as you noted there uh 781 billion dollars of spending uh over the last or over the next six years it is incredible amount uh, that's adding to our national balance sheet. Yeah, it is. It is an enormous amount of money—a trillion dollars in national debt for the first time in our country's history. Now, we spoke with the mayors of Calgary and Edmonton, and they both said um, they're trying to be somewhat less critical than they might be simply because of the pandemic. Um, obviously, we know that that's going to cost uh, pretty much every jurisdiction is running a deficit as a result of this. N- maybe not to the extent that we are. Is Do you cut them any slack there? Are they handling that in the right way in terms of making sure we're positioned for a, a solid recovery? There's been a lot of money that's gone out the door to support Canadians during the pandemic, and we are not at all critical of that. We've actually been very supportive of things like the Canadian uh, Emergency Wage Subsidy, which has been a great program, is uh, making sure that Canadians had money in their pockets to pay the essentials while we've gotten through this pandemic. We also are appreciative of the fact that they, in March, they topped up the uh, the health transfer. Nothing in this budget that actually shows how provinces are going to pay for the additional health expenses that are a result of the, the pandemic. So, in addition in addition to the deficits you see at the federal level, by necessity, the provinces are going to have huge expenses and huge deficits to, to deal with going forward as well. So uh, being the official opposition, of course, you're in a position to say yay or nay to this budget. It looks like the NDP have pretty much um, secured its passage. Um, would you vote in favor of this and what do you expect from uh, your party leadership? We, uh, as a party, we get together. That usually happens tomorrow morning, Wednesday morning, and we're going to discuss this as a caucus and see where we are on it. I can tell you from somebody who used to work in the finance industry, there's a lot in here I don't like. Uh, there is some things in here that I do like, and you know, one of which is, of course, the tax credit for carbon capture, utilization, and sequestration. So I'm going to speak for that and obviously in favor of it. Uh, I'd like it to see it, make sure it does mirror what uh, the 45Q 
uh, is like in the United States because we really de- we really do need to mirror the United States on our environmental positions going forward. So we don't have jobs leaving Canada for the U.S. with a free trade agreement we obviously have with the United States. So we've got to make sure that our environmental costs and practices mesh well with the U.S. And carbon capture is one of those where we have the opportunity to piggyback on an innovation that they brought to the uh, to the sector just two years ago. I remember prior to those two years ago, Canada led in carbon capture utilization and sequestration. So I want to make sure that that moves forward in particular, and it's it's a bill from my party that's going through Parliament right now, and I'm the sponsor of that bill. Uh, and we want to make sure it goes through well, and we think it'll, it'll be good for the environment, it'll be good for the economy, and these things need to mesh going forward very clearly. Um, yeah, is that enough? Uh, in talking with Mayor Nenshi, he he was a little concerned that Alberta perhaps was overlooked a bit in this federal budget because of not only the pandemic we had to deal with, just like everybody else, but of course we have the, the resource revenue problem we were dealing with before the pandemic even came along. So um, was Alberta overlooked, in your opinion, as an Alberta MP? I think this government has a lot of interest groups that are pushing hard against the oil and gas industry, and it is beholden to those interest groups. So it can't be seen to be very favorable towards Albertans because our main industry still is oil and gas, although it has less of our economy than it used to be. Nevertheless, as we as we make our oil and gas uh, production more and more environmentally friendly, there still is a, a strong chorus out there that has the liberal ear that said you ne- that, that says you have to decommission this industry as quickly as possible. Obviously, I don't believe that. Obviously, my party doesn't believe that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to make sure that this industry has the runway to produce uh, more and more environmentally friendly uh, resource for the country and for taxpayers of Canada and for workers in, in, uh, in many provinces in Canada going forward. Um, lastly, uh, amendments. We know that's on the table for, well, as early as today from um, the federal Conservative Party. Uh, what do you think will be proposed in terms of what you would like to see changed in this budget? Well, like I say, the, the carbon capture utilization and storage, we want some clarity on that so that it actually does apply to enhanced oil recovery, which is clearly left out of their approach to it. And we're not sure how that applies at this point in time because utilization by its definition requires you do something with the carbon. Uh, so we're trying to make sure that we, uh, we you know, we, we get that clearly understood by the Liberal government. Uh, there are other areas we're going to discuss tomorrow about some of the amendments that we think are coming forward. We want to make sure Canadians are taken care of through this process. We also want to make sure that there is a uh, an adequate split in the excess cost that the pandemic has caused between the provinces and the federal government, particularly with health care. And we're right on side with the provinces as far as, uh, you know, asking the federal government to step up and deliver on the health care uh, costs that have obviously been incurred by everybody going forward here. So there's a number of amendments, some of which are financial, some of which are, are, uh, are, su- are supportive of, of actually uh, a better approach and um, you know that somewhat outlined here in some of the budget we we like some of the things in the budget there's some things that we actually uh, can get behind such as you know the the issue about taxing uh, non-occupied uh, foreign mm-hmm. property in Canada and it's 
a long time coming. And it is that step forward to bring Canada up to par with some of its uh, G7 counterparts on how we deal with money laundering in Canada. And we're, we're the laggard in that. So moving forward on small items like that is a, is a big push forward. At the same time, you know, you look at some of the issues that, uh, you know, the initiatives that are geared right towards my city, Calgary, in, uh, in actually transitioning some of the downtown office buildings into residential properties. It's a bit of a, a gift, if you will. Uh, so we look at that. I'm not sure how many other cities in Canada have the uh, the commercial vacancy. As a matter of fact, there's none, I'm certain, uh, as a percentage of commercial vacancy downtown that we have in Calgary. And they're yeah. proposing $300 million to try and uh, transition that to residential properties. Uh, so that'll that'll fix in the, the city of Calgary's mix uh, and probably some other cities as well, but not as much, I think, as in Calgary. Right. So we'll, we'll, we'll identify those and we'll try and add some value. Excellent. Okay. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. That is Greg McLean, who is the uh, federal conservative MP for Calgary Centre. Uh, weighing in on what his party is saying in response to the situation uh, we saw yesterday from the federal budget. An Edmonton fertility doc recently sent a letter to his patients to let them know that his actions had, quote, contravened his professional obligations. Dr. Tarek Motan told them that he'd made a deal with pharmaceutical companies to get rebates on certain drugs. So why? Why would he send this letter? Well, probably because he had to. The mail-out was facilitated by Alberta Health Services. Essentially, in it, the doctor admits to paying pharmaceutical companies for three drugs and in return receiving rebates, you know, kickbacks from those companies, which he says went into a separate account that he managed. But wait, there's more. He also over-prescribed these drugs. He says he did that because he thought it offered a, a better chance at a successful outcome. But it also means that he bought the drugs, sold more of the drugs to his own patients, and made more money, and in turn, overprescribing comes with some pretty serious risks when we're talking about these specific medications. A lot to get into now. Uh, Lorian Hardcastle is joining us. Lorian's a professor of law at the University of Calgary with a focus on health law. Um, Lorian, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, did, did I break it down accurately there? Essentially, what we're talking about here is, is kickbacks from pharmaceutical companies to sell patients those drugs, right? That's right. Yeah, the the issue is this financial conflict of interest where the doctor uh, perhaps has uh, obligations to the patient, but then has this financial relationship with the drug company on the side. Right. And that's the concern here, obviously. I mean, the doctor now would have a motive involved in his treatment plan with his patients that isn't just the best outcome for the patient. There's also financial considerations. That seems like that just muddies the waters in a very bad way. Yeah, absolutely. And and certainly we expect of doctors and, and their regulator, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, um, is very concerned about conflicts of interest. And, and not even just actual conflicts of interest, but even the, the mere appearance of a conflict of interest or what a patient or the public might see as a conflict of interest are matters that, that are concerning for them. Yeah, and we've heard from some of his patients the other aspect of this is um, he over-prescribed these medications and he did it knowingly and he said he did it because he thought uh, it offered a better outcome, but um, it also meant that he sold more of these drugs, so therefore made money. That's one part of it. And um, the other part of it is that comes with some serious risk, so it's really hard to determine what his true motivation was behind that practice. 
That's right. And and certainly um you know there's not a there's not an exact dosage that's always going to be the right dosage right. for every patient of these. And so, you know, I, I would hope that when um, the College of Physicians and Surgeons looks into this, that, uh, you know, they, they look into the patient records and try and determine whether, uh, in this case, what he was prescribing would have been completely offside, uh, what his motivations were, and, and what sort of consent he got from the patients to prescribe the dose, the dose that he did. Did he explain to them that he was prescribing more than than usual and and the reasons for that and so hopefully that's all that all comes to light yeah and as you say i mean you know off-label prescribing or things like that doctors do have some leeway in how they use their treatment plans but are are there pretty strict rules around um patient consent and um you know sort of following certain guidelines when it comes to the practice of over prescribing yeah, absolutely. Patients are uh, have to be informed of anything that a reasonable patient would want to know. That's the, the sort of basic standard. And certainly a reasonable patient would want to know if they're receiving a higher dose of medication than is standard and, and why, um, and consent to that. Um, now, he says um, the money that he made from uh, selling these medications. He actually put into an account that he used for education. That, that doesn't change the dynamic, right? You cannot profit in any way, shape, or form. No matter where the money goes, that doesn't uh, offer any sort of explanation or excuse for this, correct? That's right. That doesn't that doesn't change things at all, in my view. Um, it doesn't matter where the money went or what the money was used for or how good the, good the cause was that it was used for. The fact that there was this financial conflict of interest and this relationship with the pharmaceutical companies is really what matters here. Yeah, and you were talking about the College of Physicians and Surgeons, and they are involved in this. They say that action has been taken and continues to be taken. We're not sure exactly what that action is. What kind of action can they take in a, in a situation like this? So the college will investigate, and if it if it merits it, uh, will which which it you know in this case would seem to uh, would would refer it to a hearing where um, a panel would would hear the evidence and hear his submissions. Um, sometimes in that case, the physician will admit to the facts, and so they'll move directly to the penalty phase. But they can impose a, a variety of sanctions, ranging from warnings to ordering retraining or reeducation. For example, in ethics, um, right up to suspending a license or revoking a license. Okay, so it could be quite severe. Um, in terms of uh, his response, and um, you know, he, he has openly admitted that this, this was going on. I'm sure it was uh, part of a discussion that he's had with the disciplinary boards. Um, but is that part, do you think, of the action that they say they have already taken, that he needs to notify his patients? Because a lot of them had no idea. Yeah, absolutely, um, and and certainly that um, there's in in the law of informed consent. Uh, one of the principles is that you know where something has has happened or has gone wrong, that patients are to be followed up with. But also, of course, um, we're not clear exactly who who he was dealing with on this matter. But but EHS and or the college um, also would have would have worked with him to encourage. Uh, we've worked with him to notify those patients of what happened. You know, when we talk about health law, and that's your specialty, are there provisions in in the different acts that um, govern the way that medicine is carried out in our province where um, 
it stressed that the, the, the patients need to have a clear understanding that the motivation of the physician is in their best interest? I mean, is that sort of laid out in some sort of ethical guidelines or rules or, or bylaws that they have to follow? Or first of all, that conflict of interest needs to be removed just because we need to have that, that basis of understanding where the patient thinks you're there actually to benefit them, not them and you. Yeah, absolutely. So it, those obligations come from both the um, the College of Physicians has standards of practice around conflicts of interest and disclosing conflicts to patients and, um, and also relationships with industry, including pharmaceutical companies. Um, and then the Canadian Medical Association also addresses these in, in their ethical codes. And I think we might codes and standards of practice as, as sounding not binding, mm-hmm. but really in this case they are, because the college has that disciplinary authority which gives their standards teeth. What's the patient's recourse if you're in a situation like that? What, how do you go about making sure that it's addressed and um, that your care is, is the kind of care that you need? Yeah, so so I think that the, the patients will hopefully... Um, be following along closely with with whatever actions um, AHS and the college ends up taking, and hopefully those those bodies um, stay in contact with with the patients so that the patients can understand what happened, understand the the facts of what occurred, um, and and hopefully get a sense of whether or not um, they should be going to somebody somebody else for for treatment, mm-hmm. or whether or not what what exactly they should be doing. Because of course that's a, a big issue here is there's not a massive surplus in infertility doctors and right. so those patients may be in a difficult position of of either deciding to continue care with him or do they try and shift to somebody else and so those will be those will be difficult choices for patients to make and you know when you're making a choice like that Lorian when you've got a doctor in a position like this like you say he may not have his license stripped we don't know exactly what the final outcome will be here but if it's not let's say he just moves he goes from Edmonton down to Calgary and starts up again is there a way for a patient who's seeking this treatment and comes across this doctor and decides to uh, make an appointment with them is there a way of finding out this kind of background information about what's gone in the past yeah so so I think I think your 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 inclination is absolutely correct looking at the at the previous at the previous cases the doctor is is almost unless there are facts that we don't yet know mm-hmm. the doctor is almost certainly not going to lose his lose his license for this he will continue to practice maybe maybe in Edmonton maybe we'll we'll move but in terms of transparency around past disciplinary actions that's been something that that the college has improved in the in the past several years and the the public has pushed for in the past in the past several years really across the country and so you can actually find college disciplinary decisions on their on their website so those are now available um, publicly okay. available which is good info because I've heard from some people who say this this guy's a great doctor they really liked what he did for them but having that background information what to be on on guard for and be aware of would certainly be helpful if you're entering into that patient doctor relationship yeah, absolutely. The the um, college really runs on on the basis of public trust. Yeah, we let exactly. self regulating professions self regulate um, because of public trust. And one of the things that enhances public trust is is that transparency and that information on their website. Excellent. Uh, some great information. Thanks so much. I, I appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for having me. You bet.
That is uh, Lorraine Hardcastle, who is a law professor at the University of Calgary with a focus on health law. And it's an interesting discussion. We're starting to hear from some of the patients of this doctor and obviously very troubling to receive that letter on Friday. The patient wants to remain anonymous, but says it was pretty jarring. You're already in a desperate and vulnerable situation when you want nothing more than to have a child and you're dealing with fertility issues and then you put your trust in people who you think have your best interests. It's really unfortunate. I definitely feel taken advantage of. Yeah, and possibly financially, she went on to say that she spent at least $5,000 out of her own pocket on these fertility medications. When you're on the higher doses, it's a lot more expensive and you're going through the medication faster. I was also stimulated for the maximum amount of days as well. So each day could be like $500 worth of drugs. Yeah, and... uh, it's pretty tough to hear that some of that money is probably going back to the doctor. Troubling situation. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.